This recording was originally made for a pastor who was confused about whether he was a pastor or an evangelist. He turned out, unfortunately, to be a beggar, a thief, and an extortioner. But there are things on this recording which might benefit you. Therefore, I'm going to go ahead and put this recording on this podcast. Dear Pastor, first let me tell you a little bit about the way God saved me and put me into the body of Christ and the ministries of Christ. I was not raised in a Christian home. My parents did not go to church at all. We had no Bibles in the house. But even as early as elementary school, God had begun to teach me. The first thing he put inside me was the doctrine concerning divorce and remarriage. As early as fourth or fifth grade, I had this doctrine inside me without ever seeing a scripture. It's a little bit like Hebrews chapter 8, where God talks about the new covenant church. God says in verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. When I was in elementary school, my mother and my aunt were in my bedroom talking, and I was asleep. I awoke to hear them talking about my dad's first wife, and I was shocked. I did not know he had a first wife, and God had put into my heart the evil of divorce and remarriage, and I was horrified. My first childlike reaction is I did not want to see my dad again because I knew divorce and remarriage was wrong. And yet I had never gone to a church and we had no Bible. It had to have been put there by God. Later I read the scriptures on divorce and remarriage after I was born again. I read the scriptures on divorce and remarriage. If you will look at two sections of scripture, it pretty much explains the subject. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. Jesus speaking to the men of the group said, But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her 
that is divorced committeth adultery. Three problems here. The man who divorces a faithful wife will be the cause of the faithful wife's adultery if she remarries. The faithful wife will commit adultery if she remarries after divorce. And the third thing is, the man who marries this divorced woman commits adultery. Those are things not being taught, for the most part, in today's churches. I think they're not taught because they would not be popular with the church group. But these are doctrines of Christ for the New Testament church. Another thing is, if if it is taught, often it is twisted to read something like, if the wife's husband is a drunkard, she can divorce him. Or if he's a fornicator, she can divorce him and remarry. But that is not correct. Because in this passage of Scripture, if that faithful wife remarries, she will commit adultery. Also, That would not fit with what Paul said was the commandment of the Lord stated in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians 7, 10 and 11, Paul says, Unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. This clearly shows us that the woman who divorces her husband or is divorced from her husband must not remarry. She must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. If she remarries after a divorce, she commits adultery and the man who marries her commits adultery according to the scriptures. We could find other scriptures to go into on this subject. One more which I will cover, which is Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. Again, Paul was speaking to the men, and he said, verse 1, Know ye not, brethren, For I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, She shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Some people will teach that saying, but we're not under the law. Well, we're not under the law of sacrifice for sins being animal sacrifices. We're not under the law of Moses in the, con- in the context of the law concerning forgiveness of sins. For Jesus paid for our sins with his blood, 
And the new covenant is in effect concerning the sacrifice of sins, but concerning divorce and remarriage for a woman, it's the same. We don't have instances in the Old Testament that I know of where a woman is divorced and then remarries. She remarries after her husband is dead, taking the subject of Abigail, for example. It was after her husband was dead that David sent to Abigail to take Abigail for his wife. There are many laws of God in the New Testament, and we go by those laws. Those are rules for the church. Well, I didn't know these things when I was in elementary school and heard that my dad had been divorced and remarried. I think if the woman is unfaithful, the man can divorce her and remarry. But the woman can't. You'll have to look again closely at those two verses of Scripture to understand this. If that woman remarries, she commits adultery. But if the man remarries and his wife is unfaithful and he divorces her and remarries, I believe he can remarry without committing adultery, provided the woman has not been married. Now, you've just heard one of the things that God showed me that apostles do. They deal with church doctrine. God took me to Acts chapter 15 to show me what apostles do in the church. They deal with doctrines for the church. What we New Testament apostles do is to deal with doctrines of the Holy Bible, the New Testament Holy Bible. And we're always trying to set doctrines straight with individuals in the church. We rarely have an opportunity to do this in the church group, but we often do it with individuals. We're always talking about divorce or remarriage. We're always taking people Two, the scriptures on divorce remarriage. Another scripture would be Mark 10, which illuminates this situation on divorce remarriage. Verse 6. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female, says Jesus. And Jesus, in the previous verse, verse 5, he told the Pharisees, he said, For the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote a bill of divorcement. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. At the time of sexual intercourse, the two become one flesh. We know that because Paul tells us that. In 1 Corinthians 6, toward the end of the chapter, he's telling the men, flee fornication. Even if you have fornication with a prostitute, you become one flesh with the prostitute. So we know that they become one flesh by sexual intercourse. So verse 8, Jesus says, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more 
two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house, Jesus' disciples asked him again of the same matter of divorce and remarriage. And he, Jesus, saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. She's one flesh with that husband. He is one flesh with her. Now, if she goes off and commits fornication, then he is freed from her. But if the husband commits fornication, the wife is not freed. Why? God was going to keep the seed pure. The wife would bear the children, and he was going to keep that seed pure. The wife is to have one husband unless that husband is dead. And if he's dead, she is free to remarry, but only in the Lord, only to marry another believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us that. Apostles work with church doctrine. You've seen me speak about the subject of ministers who call themselves reverent. That's what apostles do. They deal with doctrine. New Testament apostles deal with Bible. And we have an anointing from God to bring correction to the ministers and to the church on doctrinal issues. When the churches are doing something and teaching something that is incorrect, an apostle will deal with church doctrine on the subject, if at all possible. Sometimes they won't let us speak, but we do bring it to individuals. God took me to Acts chapter 15 to show me what apostles do. First of all, I was driving along the road one day, and God spoke to me and said, I have called you and set you in the body of Christ as an apostle. I said, an apostle? What's an apostle? I knew at our church group, we believed there were apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the work of the ministry, because that's what Jesus says in Ephesians chapter 4. So that was taught at our church group that there are five ministry offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, for the perfecting of the saints. So our church that I was attending believed that. I went to our Bible teacher and I asked him, I said, who are the apostles at this church? And he said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, what do apostles do? And he said, I don't know. So I turned to God and prayed and asked God to show me what apostles do in the church. It was God who, it was Jesus technically, who ordained me as an apostle. He was going to have to teach me what they do in the church because I had no example to go by. 
It is not the way people today can see an evangelist and say, oh, that's what evangelists do. Although I think it's better if you ask God what you're supposed to do in the church. Or they can look at a pastor and say, oh, that's what a pastor does. Oh, that's what a teacher does. But who's going to be able to look at an apostle and say, I couldn't find an apostles in our church group. Though our church group professed to believe, Ephesians 4.11, that there are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the church today. If you will notice Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says, And he gave some apostles, some apostles, multiple apostles, some prophets, multiple prophets, some evangelists, multiple evangelists, some pastors, multiple pastors, and some teachers, multiple teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. After Jesus was resurrected, Paul was not the last apostle. Paul was one of the first of the New Testament apostles. Why? Because at the time Jesus rose into heaven, Paul was persecuting the church. And in Acts chapter 1, when Peter said they had to choose someone to replace Judas as an apostle, they chose between two men, and they had they cast lots, and they prayed and said, God, you know the hearts of the men. You choose. And Matthias was named as the apostle to replace Judas. He had walked with the apostles from the beginning of the time that Jesus was on the earth. And that was one of the requirements for an apostle to replace Judas. But here are going to be other apostles, which Jesus is going to appoint from heaven. And they do not fit the requirements of Peter in Acts chapter 1. They don't fit the requirements because Paul didn't even fit the requirements. Let's look at Acts chapter 1 for a moment. Starting at verse 21, Peter states the requirement for the person who would replace Judas as an apostle. They chose two men, and Peter said, Wherefore of these men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day, that Jesus was taken up from us into heaven, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. And they appointed two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen to replace Judas that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Messiah, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Messiah became the twelfth apostle, the apostle who would replace Judas. What about Paul? 
At the time this happened, Paul was out persecuting the Christians. It wasn't until later that Jesus revealed himself to Paul. Well, Paul's one of these New Testament apostles that was going to happen today, just like a New Testament pastor today. Now go to Ephesians chapter 4. After he ascended, after Jesus arose, after the crucifixion, after he left this earth, he was on this earth 40 days between the time of him being raised from the dead and taken into heaven. He walked on this earth for 40 days and revealed himself to more than 500 people in that 40 days period of time. And then he was taken into heaven, Acts chapter 1. Well, when he was taken into heaven, he gave gifts unto men. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 8, When he, Jesus, ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Verse 11, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. At the time, Peter and the other apostles cast lots before God, and Matthias became the twelfth apostle, replacing Judas. At that same time, Paul was persecuting the church. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth, and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, Paul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise, and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. In Acts 26, Paul is telling this event to King Agrippa, and he describes it more fully. So let's look at Acts 26. In verse 4, Paul says, My manner of life from my youth which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straitest sect of our religion, 
I lived a Pharisee, and now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a strange thing with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them off in every synagogue, and compel them to blaspheme, and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. So Paul tells in detail here what Jesus said to him. I have appeared to you to make you a minister. For three days Paul was out his vision. Three days in Damascus. And then God sent to Paul his servant to lay hands on Paul and open his eyes. And the things like scales on his eyes fell from his eyes and Paul could see. And then he was baptized. This is all done after the crucifixion of Jesus. There were people who did not think Paul could be an apostle because he didn't walk with Jesus. He was persecuting the church at the time Jesus walked on the earth. And we read in some of the epistles, the chapters of the epistles of Paul, that obviously 
they didn't think he was an apostle at that time. We will fi- I'll find that for us. We read in verse 2, If I be not an apostle unto others, yea, doubtless I am to you, says Paul, for the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer unto them that examine me is this. There were people who did not think Paul could be an apostle. He just didn't fit the description that Peter presented in Acts 1. But they discounted the information in Ephesians 4, which had not yet been given to the church, where Jesus brought to the church after he was resurrected into heaven. He brought some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, and some teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So Paul was really one of the first of these New Testament apostles in the same way exactly that God called me to be an apostle. So on the road that day when I was driving my car down the road and Jesus said to me, I have called you and set you in the body of Christ as an apostle. Then I began trying to find out what an apostle did. Went to my our Bible teacher at the church I attended, and he didn't know, even though the church I attended professed to believe Ephesians chapter 4, that there are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers in the church today. I had no recourse but to return to God and say, you're going to have to teach me because I can't see any pattern of what an apostle does in the New Testament church today. At that point, he took me to Acts chapter 15 to show me what apostles do. Apostles judge doctrine in the churches. That's one of the main things we do. We have an anointing to judge doctrine. And Acts 15 shows that. A question arose in those days, do the Jews have to be circumcised? And there was great disputing among the apostles and among the elders. So they met at Jerusalem to settle the subject. Peter discussed it. Paul discussed it. They both gave their opinions. They presented scripture. And then James rendered the verdict. Verse 6, And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and spoke. And then we know Paul rose up and spoke. And then James, who was sitting there, he had the decision on the subject. James rose up to pronounce the sentence on the matter. And James says, Known unto God, verse 18, are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them, the Gentiles, which are from among the Gentiles turned to God. They don't have to be circumcised, James is saying, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas named Barsabas, 
and Silas, chief men among the brethren, and they wrote letters by them after this manner to the uh, Gentiles. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the names of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent, therefore, Judas and Silas, their prophets, who shall tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good unto the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which, if you keep yourself, ye shall do well, fare ye well. So they sent the comfort to the Gentiles and the rules to the Gentiles on what they must do to keep themselves. Well, God took this section of scripture with me to show me the anointing that he gives, that Jesus gives to the ministry offices of apostles that they are anointed to deal with church doctrine. Now, we don't get to do it exactly the way they showed here where we meet with all of the elders and we meet with the other apostles. We just, we can't do it that way. But we do it constantly. We're telling doctrine. We're speaking doctrine constantly. You read what I write. You hear some of these podcasts. You know I'm always speaking about church doctrine, divorce, remarriage, homosexuals, lesbians, use of the name of reverend, and how it should not be used to describe a minister, for there's only one place where the word reverend is used in the Bible, and that concerns the name of God. Holy and reverend is his name. However, it is proper for ministers to call themselves apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastors, and teachers according to their calling because that is what Jesus called them in Ephesians chapter 4. So that's what apostles do, deal with church doctrine. It's very, very mixed up in church land today, out there in the church groups where they teach it's all right for women to remarry after divorce, where they teach that God forgives them, of course you can remarry, where they teach God loves you and he wants you to be happy. He wants you to go by the rules and obey him. That's how we know if we belong to God, is if we obey the commandments of the Lord in the New Testament Bible. So God taught me what to do in the calling of apostle. And he taught me what to do in the calling of prophet. People had recognized from the beginning of the time that I was attending churches, they recognized that the hand of God was on me. They recognized that I was a prophet. I never told anybody about the apostle thing in the years that I was attending the churches. I never talked to them about that. Well, I never talked to them about prophet either. 
till I got on radio. But they recognized me. Everywhere I went, they said, we know the hand of God is on you. We know you're a prophet. How did they know that? Because God would give me a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom. I would share it with them, and they recognized the hand of God was on me. The way God taught me, the first time I ever had a word of knowledge was in a prayer group in our community in our, near my house. And there were just a handful of women that met uh, once a week as a prayer group. As they were praying, I heard the word, I heard, look up. And I raised my head and opened my eyes and I looked on the wall and I saw the outline of a body part. It turned out it was a stomach. And I said to God, I know that's a body part. While they're praying, I'm talking to God. I said, I know that's a body part. I just don't know what part of the body it is. And the Holy Spirit said to me, stomach? And I said, oh, yeah, that's a stomach. I remembered the old Pepto-Bismol stomach commercials that I had seen on television. When the women quit praying, I gathered enough courage to say, does anybody have a stomach problem? And one woman jumped up and said, I do, I do. Well, that's how God taught me. And I, I assume they, she was healed from her stomach problem. I uh, was so excited over the way God was teaching me to identify a word of knowledge. Now, not everybody identifies word of knowledge that way. It comes in different ways, but I often see it as an outline on the wall. I had a church friend who was 44 years old, married, two children, and he had the disease ALS, that terrible crippling disease, Lou Gehrig disease. David became totally paralyzed. His church group, he lived 600 miles away from me, but his church group were praying for David. One of his church members uh, visited the city where I lived, and I said I had a vision about David. And this man was listening to me, and I said, I saw David on a golf course, and he was totally healed. He was totally whole, jumping up and down, signaling to us, come on, join me. It's wonderful. This is wonderful. And Clay said to me, don't, don't you think that means that David is going to be healed? And I said, no, David is dying. David is going to die. But his soul, his spiritual soul is all right. He's saved. That's what it means. David died a few days later. I sent a copy of this vision that I'd had. I wrote it out and sent it to David's wife and to his two children. And I told her she should have this read at David's funeral. I don't know if she did or not. They lived 600 miles away. I did not go to the funeral. But I don't know if she had that read, but I thought it would comfort people to know that God had given this vision about David where he was totally whole and on the golf course, and he had gone ahead of us. He had already died and gone ahead of us. But he was signaling, come on, this is great. Now that's what prophets do 
all the time. You're always receiving words of knowledge on things that you have no way of knowing about. You, you just have that happen constantly. You bring correction to the church. That's what a prophet does. They bring correction to the ministers. Whether the minister will hear it or not hear it, you take the correction to them because it is very important to deliver the message that you have from God. It has nothing to do with whether or not they will accept the message. Very rarely will they accept the message. Uh, Pastor, you are one of the few people I've ever seen that would correct himself. When I delivered that message to you about a reverend, and you made an immediate decision that we should not call ourselves reverend, that God's name is reverend, only God is reverend. And you told me you were going to take that name off of all of your writings and of everything, and you were going to stop calling yourself reverend, and you were going to stop people from calling you reverend, and you were going to tell your pastors who work under you not to call themselves reverend. You are one of the only people I have ever seen who would correct himself. One of the only ministers, I don't think there's any other minister I've ever seen who corrected himself the way you did. And that is the reason I speak with you today. The others were antichrist. For when a man will not correct himself or a woman will not correct herself by godly biblical information, that is antichrist. In the 1990s, I was trying to find a church to attend. I lived in Clovis, New Mexico, USA, and I visited a little non-denominational church on a Wednesday night. Pastor was speaking to about 200 people. He was speaking about John 8 and the woman taken in adultery, and Pastor said, and when she was brought before Jesus, she was naked from the waist up. I was shocked. I knew that wasn't in John 8. I grabbed my Bible. I read John 8 as he was continuing to speak. It's not there. It's not in the Bible. What he said, he added of his own imagination. I looked at the faces of the people in the congregation and the men just had these big smiles on their faces. I could tell they were imagining this woman naked from the waist up. Nobody in the congregation grabbed for a Bible. I saw nobody grab for a Bible to check what the pastor had said. I did, but I didn't see anybody else do that. The next day I called the pastor. I told him I was in his meeting on the previous night. I was looking for a church to attend and I had visited his meeting. And I said to him, when you said the woman brought before Jesus was naked from the waist up, I cannot find that in the Bible. Would you please tell me where it is in the Bible? The pastor hesitated and got quiet and then he said, well, I can't remember where it is in the Bible. And I said to the pastor, well, it's very important for me to know where that is in the Bible. So would you look it up, please, and 
tell your secretary where it is and have her call me to tell me where it is? There was dead silence. And then he became very angry and he screamed out at me, All right, it's not in the Bible. Where do you go to church? Well, the whole point was I was hunting a church to go to, but I was not going to go to one where the pastor added to the Bible at his own will and did not repent and was not sorry. Now, this is the difference between you and this these people I've seen before. You were sorry. You were sorry you called yourself reverend. When you saw the truth, you were sorry. And you weren't going to do that anymore. These people do not repent. When a person in your congregation does not repent, you can know that person is Antichrist. When they are not sorry, when they fail to be sorry for, the, for something they've done that's contrary to the word of God, they're Antichrist. Leave them alone. They will leave you if you speak the truth. They will leave you. Now, we know that by 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. John says, Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrist, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Lots of people put them in the church, put themselves into the church without having the Spirit of God. They join a church, they go forward, they're baptized in water. They do all kinds of things, but they do not have the Spirit of God. That happened to me when I was 15. I went forward at Church of Christ where my aunt attended. And I was baptized in water, but nothing changed in my life. I didn't have the Spirit of God. When I was 38 years old, God gave me the Spirit of God. God said to me by His Spirit, Joan, you know all these mistakes you've been making all these years? Those weren't mistakes. Those were sins. And I went, sins? I was shocked. I just thought they were mistakes. And I just said, sins? Well, I agreed with God. And I was saved at that moment. Born again. A few days after I was born again, it was in the night and I was asleep. I was taken into heaven, transported into heaven. I was with God, with Christ, with the Holy Spirit. I saw no images. It was a spiritual experience. But I was merged into the body of Jesus at that time, made one with the word of God, God and the Holy Spirit witnessing. A few nights later, the exact same thing happened to me again. I was taken into heaven. I was with God, with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. I was merged into the body of Jesus, made one with the Word of God, God and the Holy Spirit witnessing. I was on fire for the Word of God. After that, I cared. I didn't care about anything but Bible and 
the church. That's all I cared about, were the individuals in the church. Now, I didn't know at that time what had happened to me. I thought this happened to every Christian. I was having breakfast one morning with a friend of mine who's 10 years younger than I. Bill had been Catholic and was born again, and he was on fire for things of God. And I thought Bill was crazy because I thought I was a Christian, but I really wasn't at the time Bill became a Christian. And I just kind of thought he was nuts because he talked about things of God all the time. Well, now I'm that way. I've been born again, and I'm talking about things of God, and that's all I care about. And so Bill and I are having breakfast, and I said to him, he's down there eating. I said to him, Bill, the thing I like best is the thing that happens to you in the night. And Bill kept eating, and he said, what thing? And I said, well, I don't know what it's called. It's that thing that happens to you in the night when you're asleep, and you're taken into heaven. And you're with God by that time Bill has quit eating and is staring at me. And I said, you're taken into heaven and you're with God and you're with Christ and you're with the Holy Spirit. And Bill said, what are you talking about? And that is the first time I realized that this thing had happened to me when I was taken into heaven. This was an unusual thing. It was not something that happened to all people who were born again. I believe, looking back on it, it was the moment at which I was I was ordained into the ministries at that moment by God, by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, put into the offices of apostle prophet. Later, at the church I was attending, which was Word of Faith in Farmer's Branch, Texas, just north of Dallas, Robert Tilton was the pastor at that time. Later. Everybody knew I was a, one of I was a prophet, and Bob, from the platform, said Joan is not a teacher; she's a prophet. Our Bible teacher said that's it. He told me he said I had so often wanted to say to the class Joan is a teacher, called by God, but he said I always had a check that you weren't a teacher, that you were something else. He said, I was always had a check in my spirit. So he held back from saying that. And then when Bob said it from the pulpit, Don said, that's it. She's a prophet. Well, I, they didn't know I was an apostle also. I never told anybody. So they knew I was a prophet. But God has also told me I was an apostle and taught me on both offices. From the minute I was born again, God taught me about being a prophet. He took me to all the passage of Scripture in the Old Testament to teach me. Especially God took me to Ezekiel chapter 3, although we covered all of the things on prophets during the four or five years between the time I was born again in 1975 and until I went on radio in 1980, we covered all these scriptures on prophets. Verse 4, chapter 3, And God said unto me, Ezekiel's talking, Son of man, go, get thee unto the house of Israel, and speak with my words unto them. For thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of an hard language, but to the house of Israel. 
to the church. You are sent to the church as a prophet. You're not sent to the world like an evangelist is. You're sent to the church. Verse 6, Not to many people of a strange speech and of a hard language, whose words thou canst not understand. Surely had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto you. But the house of Israel, the church, will not hearken unto thee, for they will not hearken unto me, says God. For all of the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces, and thy forehead strong against their foreheads. As an adamant harder than flint have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, all my words that I shall speak unto thee, receive in thine heart, and hear with thine ears, and go get thee to them of the children of thy people, and speak to them, and tell them, Thus saith the Lord God whether they will hear or whether they will forbear. Prophets are sent to the church. Usually the churches kill the prophets by refusing to listen to them, by refusing the scriptures. But we are instructed by places of scripture, which are like this one in Ezekiel, that we go anyway and we speak everything that God gives us. In 1982, I was on radio from coast to coast, and God said to me, the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And he showed me sins that various big-time radio TV ministers were doing. And I tried to get the messages to those ministers, Jim Baker being one, in 1982. I contacted Jim Baker, and God told me to send him a message on the subject of adultery. So I sent the message, and I put a cover letter in with the message saying, I'm a prophet of God, and this is a message that I have received for Jim Baker. I received a letter back from Jim Baker. Now, the name of the ministry that I work under is Jesus Ministries, And on our letterhead, it says at the top of it, Jesus Ministries. I got a letter back from Jim Baker saying, Dear Jesus, thank you for your inspiring message. I want you to know that Tammy Faye and I prayed for you today, Jesus. This is crazy. It was a form letter sent by somebody in his office. He never saw that, heard that message that I sent. They threw it away and misread my letter and thought my name was Jesus. I had a similar message for Jimmy Swaggart. That was in 1982. For Bob Tilton, for Kenneth Copeland. I had messages for each of these men. And what I had to do is when I knew I couldn't get the message to Jimmy Swaggart, to Kenneth Copeland, or to... Jim Baker. God gave me a scripture to show me where Paul warned the church about Alexander the coppersmith. That was an example for me 
showing me, don't be afraid to name these men by name and tell what they did. So I got on my radio broadcast and named them by name from coast to coast and told the message that God had given me for them. Hate mail just poured into our office from their followers. And radio stations began putting me off the air. In Seattle, I was having a meeting for the radio audience, and the station manager of the Seattle radio station was waiting for me at the door of my meeting room as I arrived. George had always been very friendly to me, but this time George had a very stern look on his face, and he said, Joan, you have many good messages. Just speak those messages. If you keep speaking these judgment messages, I don't know what's going to happen to you. We may have to put you off the air. The Holy Spirit rose up in me and said to George, George, if I don't speak the message that I believe to be from God, then I don't have a message and I may as well be off the air. For the next 40 years, that defined my path. Speak the message that you believe to be from God and let them do what they will to you. The same thing is told Ezekiel over here in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17. God says, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman. Prophets are watchmen. Unto the house of Israel, unto the church. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speaketh to warn the wicked to turn from his wicked way, to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thy hand. If we as prophets fail to speak and warn them, and they die in their sins, at the church, we're guilty. This is a very strong motivation for a prophet. Verse 19, God said, Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, and he die in his iniquity, thou hast delivered thy soul. So by speaking the message, we deliver our soul, whether they hear or whether they won't hear. Verse 20, Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die because thou hast not given him warning. He shall die in his sin, and his righteousness, which he hath done, shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require at thy hand. I made a recording for Robert Tilton, because he killed a prophet the pastor at the church that I was attending. This prophet from our church called me in tears. Bob had invited her to be on his television program. Just before they went on camera, Bob said to her, just one thing, don't say anything about being a prophet because it's not popular. Well, she called me in tears. I knew Bob had killed a prophet. In Matthew chapter 23, At the end of that chapter, Jesus says, Woe unto you who kills a prophet. Your house will be left unto you desolate. 
If you try to keep a prophet from speaking, your house will be left unto you desolate. So I made a recording for Bob and sent it to his to him, and he heard it. Now, he heard it because he knew me. I was there in his church at every service. So he knew me very well, and he knew I was a prophet. He had said I was a prophet from the pulpit. He listened to the recording. One of the church people who worked in the office told me about it. She said he and Marty, his wife, and some of the church workers gathered around the table and listened to the message. Well, the message was this, Bob, you killed a prophet. When you kept Ava from saying that she is a prophet, you killed a prophet, therefore your house will be left unto you desolate. They took that tape, and Bob cut it in little pieces and threw it in the wastebasket, and they danced around it quoting scripture. This was a faith movement church. And I said to the woman who told me what they had done, I said, but did they hear the message? She said, oh, yes, they heard the message. I said, well, that's all that matters. They heard the message. After that, that was in 1982, a few years after that, ABC did an expose on Robert Tilton, which they aired on Primetime Live. And it was just awful. Bob had been asking for prayer requests. The people sent prayer requests. They were immediately forwarded unopened from the church building where he had them send the prayer request in Farmer's Branch, Texas, outside of Dallas, to Tulsa, to a bank, where at the bank, the tellers opened the letters, threw the prayer request in the garbage, and deposited the checks. Bob was taking in offerings of $80 million a year. That's incredible. $80 million a year by soliciting prayer requests. His offerings fell to $2 million a year, which is still an enormous amount of money after that primetime live production. It turned out that he and his first wife, Marty, divorced, and he married a second wife, and she sued him for divorce and filed a lawsuit against him, and he married a third wife. His church completely disintegrated, and the church members began suing him over this hundredfold return, saying that he was preaching something that wasn't right, and they had given their money to him and did not get a hundredfold return. A hundredfold return has absolutely nothing to do with the giving of offerings. A hundredfold return has to do with us obeying God and doing what He says. And if we do that, we'll receive a hundredfold return now in this lifetime. But it has nothing to do about giving offerings at church. Well, Bob was preaching that to get money. At, on his national television program, on his radio programs, and at his church gathering. And he was taking in $80 million a year in offerings. Well, after the primetime live thing on throwing the prayer request away in the garbage at the bank, Bob never saw those prayer requests. Well, you can't handle prayer requests that way. I don't ask for prayer requests. I tell them to pray. If you pray according to the will of God, then 
your prayer will be answered. You pray. John chapter 5. I believe it's John chapter 5 where that is uh, that scripture is. That if you pray according to the will of God, your prayer will be answered. I never ask for prayer requests. I never solicit prayer requests. I had a situation when early in the ministry when Bob told me, he said, Joan, you need to enroll with Michael Ellison Advertising Agency. He can do you a lot of good. So I contacted Michael Ellison. He represented at that time Jimmy Swaggart and Kenneth Copeland, Marilyn Hickey, Bob Tilton. Ellison sent an agent to Dallas to talk with me, and the agent said, just one thing, we want you to put on your envelope, send me your prayer request. And I said, well, I don't want to do that. He said, you don't? I said, no, they should pray. They go to God through Jesus, not through me. And if they are praying according to the will of God, their prayer will be answered. So the agent said to me, well, Joan, you're missing a good bet if you don't do this because when they send you a prayer request, they will usually put money in the envelope. They're buying prayer requests. It was a fundraising gimmick. Well, I never did that. And the agency, they threw me out within about four months. They they contacted me and said, we have found we're going to have to eliminate some of our clients. And unfortunately, you are one of the ones that we're going to have to eliminate. Well, I wouldn't obey them. Of course, they couldn't deal with me. I wouldn't obey them because I knew it was wrong to do this. Oh, there's so much evil in ministries, though. There's just so much evil in ministries, in pastors, in churches, in TV preachers, radio preachers. Awful stuff going on. I was terribly grieved. Back to that situation where I was trying to find a church to attend. I went to another church on a Sunday morning, and the pastor was teaching the Sunday school lesson, and he said, Sarah and Hagar were half-sisters. Well, I've read Genesis many times, and I had never seen it stated that Sarah and Hagar were half-sisters. So I went to all the passages in Genesis and reread them. The next day I called a pastor and I told him, I said, I was in your Sunday school class yesterday morning. I'm looking for a church to attend. And when you spoke about Sarah and Hagar being half-sisters, I've never heard that before. And I went home and I couldn't find that in the Bible. I would like to know where that is in the Bible. He got deathly silent. And then he said to me, can't remember where it is. And I said to him, well, it is very important to me to know. So will you please find it and tell your secretary where it is in the Bible and have her call me and tell me where it is in the Bible? And just like the other pastor, he got angry with me he, and he yelled at me on phone and said, all right, it's not in the Bible. But he wasn't sorry and he didn't repent. And this is what I've seen over and over and over. I've always gone to them. 
and I've talked to them or talked to them by phone or I've written to them, but I've never had anybody repent until you repented on the subject of reverend. I've never had anyone else repent. And that's the reason I'm talking to you, because you repented. The Antichrist ministers will not repent. The congregations of Antichrist will not repent. Prophets of all people know this because they deliver correction messages all the time when they, ha when they see the evil. And they strike out at the prophet. But rarely does anyone repent. And another thing, they're not sorry for what they did. They show no shame. This grieved me for many years because they showed no shame. In approximately 2017, God showed me that they are Antichrist. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 that they're Antichrist. And that's the reason they don't repent and they show no shame over doing what they've done to the Bible. In Revelation 9, we have seen several plagues already brought in the Great Tribulation upon men. And verse 20 says, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not, of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their fornication, nor their thefts. They won't repent if they're Antichrist. Therefore, when I see them not repent, I walk away. But if I see someone who will repent, as you have well seen, I will communicate with you, and I will do it rapidly. I think that is about all of the message today that I uh, feel I can record. I'll, I'll record another message someday for you um, if you receive this message. Thank you, Pastor.